So let me ask you, when do we develop the virtue of self-control? When? If ever. (laughs) I'm guessing it's probably not at the age of one, or at least at 13 months. I have an awesome little boy. His name is Declan. And I've noticed, particularly when it comes to portion control, my little boy, I'm sure he will someday, but right now has no sense of self-control. So the other day we were in the grocery store and I, I turned just for a second and Deck grabs an entire apricot yeah. and sticks the whole thing in his mouth. <laughs> if you have a plate of french fries or a bowl of blueberries, it's as many as, it, he basically has the cookie monster approach to eating. All of it, all at once, om nom 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 nom. Like that, there's no self-control there. I'm sure it'll develop. Maybe before the year's out, I don't, I've never done this before, but um, we, we hope to help him learn self-control at a very young age. But I don't think at 13 months when it comes to food, there's a lot of self-control that can be uh, demanded of a small child. But when do we develop self-control? In 2014, the Oxford English Dictionary was trying to decide what the word of the year would be. Are you familiar with this? Word of the year is, of all the new words that have entered into the English language, what's the one that wins the prize for being either the best or the most used or the most prolific or whatever? So in 2014, uh, the word that won the word of the year was selfie. That was the new official English word that was added to our lexicon. Uh, But in the finalist category was another word, binge-watching. Do you know what binge watching is? Anyone? What's binge watching? Someone just tell me. Hours and hours upon hours. Seven seasons of two months or in one weekend of watch a show. All right. Now, see, there's a little. De- wow, you guys are going at You guys are talking. Amongst, see, here's the thing. I read an article and there's a lot of debate about what actually binge watching is. What constitutes binge watching? How much do you have to watch? before it becomes a binge. And so I read a lot of articles. Um, Oddly enough, Netflix was the one place that had the shortest amount of time. I think they're trying to encourage as much binging. So they said, if you watch two hours in a row. Now, for most people, they're like, come on, two hours? I mean, that's just a night of watching television for most of us. So uh, unscientifically, people uh, have written about this and said that basically... Once you hit four hours in a row, if you go over four hours, you're officially binging on whatever it is. But the thing I found most interesting about the article was not uh, deciding what is binging and what isn't, but it was the effect that binging had on people. So they found out that if you planned to binge, if, if it was part of what you had prescribed to do on a weekend or whatever, that binging could, didn't have a negative effect on you. In fact, you could find it relaxing. However, if you didn't plan for binging, and if a quote that came out of your mouth was something like, well, I was going to go outside Saturday, but then the good wife happened, <laughs> then it had a negative impact. Uh, I, I like this quote. So this is someone talking about this. He, uh, he said, often I'll be like, okay, I'm just going to watch this one episode while I sit on the couch and fold laundry. And then, yes, suddenly, five hours later, I'm still on the couch with only half of the laundry folded. 
And then other times I'm like, nope, today is Saturday and I'm going to watch Parenthood and eat cereal all morning. Okay? So you see the difference? And the article points out that second one was kind of a relaxing thing uh, for this person. But the first one, the thing he didn't plan for that just sort of happened to him that he couldn't control left him feeling, as other people quoted, a yucky feeling, like my consciousness was being overtaken by the show and I wanted to get back to the real world. So it probably comes to you as a little surprise, but research shows that people with higher levels of self-control are happier, healthier, richer, and better liked. And one implication of the article, I think, is that exercising self-control made viewing television, even massive amounts of television, much more enjoyable. And I think there's something to this. You know, we often think of self-control as basically a real drag, right? Anyone here excited about self-control this morning? Just woke up thinking, wow, self-control is awesome. Self-control is helping me live a wild, exciting, adventurous life. Anyone? I'm hearing giggles, but no raised hands. But self-control often feels like we're limiting our amount of enjoyment of life. After all, would life be better if I ate an entire bag of Oreos instead of, say, a handful? So we limit ourselves to a handful of cookies, and we're not satisfied because we would like to have more. But if we eat the entire bag, what happens? We feel guilty. We might feel sick, and when we binge eat, there's usually regrets associated with it. So we're sort of stuck in this no man's land where uh, we hate self-control because we feel like we're limiting our enjoyment of everything around us, but when we binge and we go too far, we feel sick, literally sometimes, or guilty, Um, and so we don't really enjoy things like we could or we think that we should on either ends of the spectrum. Are you following with me? So there's got to be a better way, right? Where we don't feel like we're losing and when we're not sick or we don't feel sick. And I think that what we'll find is actually self-control in the right perspective can release more joy into our lives. Can release more joy into our lives. It can become an opportunity to experience life like we want, like sucking the marrow out of life without feeling sick afterwards. Are you tracking with me? So that's what we're going to look at today. And to do that, we're going to go back to the first Bible passage we started in this series. This is the last week of our series on virtue. And we started looking at this list that one of the early church fathers, a guy named Paul, he wrote to one of the churches he started to encourage them. And later it became Christian scripture. And so Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, and he wrote this. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you're not able to do whatever you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, 
forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and here we come to, in our last week, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. In this passage, I think that we can see at least four things that we need to experience what I'm calling a wild self-control in our life, to experience self-control in a way that releases more pleasure into our lives, not less, and leaves us feeling good. And the first thing we need is just real simple. We need help. I think we see that. My one-year-old son, he's going to need help from me. I'm going to ha- um, Beck and I, we're going to have to train him about boundaries and self-control as he grows up. But we need help, too, as adults. Willpower, according to Paul, as we see in this passage, is not enough to produce self-control in our lives. It helps, but as anyone who's ever failed at keeping a New Year's resolution can tell you, with the big things in our lives... Often it's not enough. Instead, Paul encourages his hearers to look for help from the Spirit of God. Did you notice that? But in an interesting way, to receive help, and I don't, I don't know, if, I talked about this a couple years ago, so maybe it's time to mention it again. It's been a while. Uh, location is important to Paul, to receiving help. In Paul's writings, grace is not so much a philosophy or an approach to life as it is a location. And Paul will warn people and encourage them and say sometimes, you've fallen from grace, as if grace is a place or a sphere where your experience of life is colored, filled, saturated by the ongoing experience, not only of the acceptance of God, but of his help. Grace. And walking by the Spirit in this passage is another way to communicate this possibility. Walking or living by the Spirit is living in the sphere, in the place, in the location of grace. Where God's Spirit is with you and helping you. That's what grace is. Now in this passage we see something that's opposed to this experience of life, this grace-filled, spirit-filled experience of life. It's called the flesh. Now that is, let's be honest, today, that is like a really weird way to talk about anything. I've never heard outside of a church anyone talk about the flesh. Have you? It's really, so for us, you can't just say, oh, the flesh, and expect it to make sense. And I think when you hear the term the flesh, you would think, you know, about your physical body, right? Like, well, this is my flesh, right? And Paul uses the term to flesh, the flesh, I don't think, though, that as we look at this, that he's referring to your literal body so much, or our physical selves, and talking about our physical bodies are at war with the Spirit. Because when Paul describes acts of the flesh here, some of them are about things that can take physical form, like how we engage in sexual relationships with people, but most of them are about social and emotional things, like Discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. And even the physical things, like our sexual relationships with people, are very much social and emotional things. And I think what Paul is getting at are these impulses 
that we have. Uh, that can be overamped up. That can try to control our lives and motivate our lives and push our lives in different directions. At the same time, however, Paul does what I think is kind of a surprising and interesting thing. See if you can follow me on this and see if this seems like a surprise to you. So he lumps the flesh, like watch out for the flesh, in the same boat as living under the law. So in verse 18, he says, but if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Okay, so you've got the flesh in conflict with the spirit. You've got living under the law at conflict with the spirit. Now, why that's interesting to me is because you would think that living by the flesh or living under the law would be like total opposites. So living according to the flesh would be just following every impulse that you have and letting that direct your life, letting that shape who you are, letting that uh, shape your character, right? And the other extreme would be living by the rules, not following any of your impulses, doing what the book or the rule book or the prescriptions are and focusing your life that way. They seem like the polar opposites. And like we should be choosing between either or. It's like the box of Oreos. One Oreo, wait, the whole box would be living by the flesh. Maybe one would be by the rules, right? And we've already said that doesn't work very well because we either up, end up sick or feel like we didn't get enough. And I think we see that same distinction being made here. And Paul's saying neither of those work in our lives. Both of them are opposed to living in the sphere of grace or living by the Spirit. In other words, life by the flesh is a life of autonomy. It's our best efforts to follow our impulses to happiness and fulfillment on our own. It's a life that prefers to trust our own abilities to get where we want to be and experience a happy life without any help. It's a life that resists input, including God's input and help. It's a life that resists grace. Then living under the law does the same thing, but it just does it in a different way. If living by the flesh says, I don't need God's help. I can follow my impulses to happiness. Living under the law says I can control God by following all of the rules and forcing God by my righteous behavior to bless my life. And this approach takes the focus off of God and puts it on our abilities to manipulate him by our behavior. And so living under the law is also a life that resists grace that pulls us out of the location or the sphere of grace, pulls us out of the place where we can experience ongoing input from the Holy Spirit of God and power to live in a different way. And I think Paul is saying that if you try and live by the law, you'll end up in the same place as if you indulge every broken default setting in your life. Miserable. Full of hatred, discord, jealousy, insatiable driving, appetites. And this question, I think, to anyone who reads this is, is that what you want? And he's writing to a group of people who've decided that's not what they want. And that list for him, I don't think is a list of the desires of the flesh and the results of living by the flesh or by the law. 
He's not throwing that out there as, wow, I bet you wish you still had this in your life more and more and more. He's trying to say, look, this is what you left behind, right? This isn't what you wanted. He's trying to remind them of something better that they hoped for when they first started their journey with Jesus. Something that can motivate them away from a misplaced, overreaching self-confidence. Not that they are terrible people, no, not at all. Not that they don't have gifts and abilities, just that they need grace in their life. And they need to be in the sphere of grace. So what do we need for that? What is he, why is he reminding them of this? Well, I think the second thing we can learn is that, well, first we need help, but second, we need a promise of something better. We need a promise of something better. You know, I've had lots of friends over the years who have tried to quit smoking. You probably have lots of friends that have tried to quit smoking. Maybe you've tried to quit smoking a couple times. Maybe you tried many times and finally kicked it. But what I found is that most of my friends who've been able to kick the habit of smoking weren't able to do it just for themselves. Usually something happened in their lives that motivated them beyond their normal willpower. A lot of my friends got married. Their spouse wanted them to quit. They wanted to have a long life with their spouse, so they quit. Some of my friends quit because they had a baby, and they realized, I want to be around when this guy or this girl gets married, goes to college, has their own kids, just grows up, period. I want to be there. So they quit smoking. It's a picture of something better in the future than what cigarettes would offer in the present, as difficult as quitting would be. And I think Paul does a similar thing here. He, he does warn his readers about the effects of indulging the flesh. That's kind of like the Surgeon General's warning on a pack of cigarettes. It's there all the time. It's true. And to some level, it's helpful. But it's not enough, really. So he does remind them. But he doesn't stop there. Instead, he offers them a picture of something better that they can have. And that's what we've been looking at for the last eight to ten weeks. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the things you can experience if you're in the sphere of grace. If you're walking in step with the Spirit of God. These are the things that are available to you. And these are the things that most of us at the deepest level, we want to experience, yeah? Love, joy, these are the big ones. And these are the things we're really after. So if we're in a situation where we have a choice to make, and an impulse is leading us one direction, but a rule says it's the wrong way to go, what do we do? And I think at this point, Paul knows that we need more than a rule. We need a promise. Something bigger, better than what an impulse could offer, and something that can motivate beyond what a rule can do to help us make a decision. See, impulses are too short-term to trust, and rules just tend to make that impulse more attractive. But a promise can help move us out of the spheres of impulse or legalism and back into a sphere of grace where we consider where God can take us if we trust him, even if it costs us in the short term. 
And it reminds us that we have a long-term places in our lives that are so much better than what's offered in the moment that God can help us realize. Promises help make room in our lives for the activity of the Holy Spirit. And making room for the Holy Spirit is essential because there's a third thing I think we can learn because we need real power. We need some juju. We need something tangible, not just like the idea that God can help us. We need to experience God in our lives, a real God that's active, not the idea of a God, not the philosophy of a God, not God in some way that I don't actually ever feel, but I know somehow he must be helping me, God. But whoa, God's in my life, God. That's what we need. I'm not saying every day in every situation we'll experience it that tangibly, but we need that sometimes and in real ways. And the big warning that Paul gives in this passage is that the flesh and the law, ways that we push grace away, will cause us to miss the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God might be another good way to say the sphere of grace. That's where what, things happen the way God wants them to happen in the kingdom of God. In the realm, in the sphere of grace, where the spirit leads us, in step of the spirit, where the kingdom of God is. And he says, I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who live by the rules and those who follow every impulse, neither will experience the kingdom of God. But if we walk by the spirit, here's the promise, we can experience the kingdom of God. It's the spirit that brings the kingdom into our lives. The kingdom of God is God's invading power that comes into our world and puts things right. One commentator said, the war between the flesh and the spirit is part eschatological. That means the end of everything. It's an eschatological rescue mission through which God is bringing redemption to an enslaved world. Someone else said, the spirit provides a counteracting force which motivates and directs them to exclude the flesh. The spirit provides the power we need to live in the sphere of grace and experience the fruits of the Spirit, the way life is supposed to be. You know, sometimes I think we think about the choices we have to make a little bit like Homer Simpson. Have you seen this picture before? This is Homer, <laughs> right? One shoulder, he's got evil devil Homer, right? The other shoulder, he's got angel Homer, okay? Okay. And I think this is often the way we think about the decisions we have to make. But I don't think it works. Because first of all, nobody really wants to do evil. Very few people are like, yes, I'm going to be wicked evil today. I am just going to mess up some people's lives. You know, not very many people on the planet do that. And everybody wants to be happy, right? Let me suggest instead of putting your focus on good or evil... Think about where you want to be. Where do you want to be? What do you want your life to be like? Where are you going? What could life be like for you? What would love, peace, joy, self-control, healthy relationships, healthy community look like in your life? Then evil in this perspective isn't something that's an option. Instead, it's something that's an obstacle to getting to where it is 
you want to be and where God wants you to be. And if you can get there on your own, if you can overcome the challenges, the evil in the way, on your own, then great, go and do it. If, if following your impulses will get you there, or if following the rules will get you there, fine, who am I to judge? Go for it. But I think what we're seeing in this passage is that Paul's saying both of those approaches are leading you a direction away from where you really want to end up. They are obstacles. So if you think you might need a little help to experience the kind of life that you've always dreamed of, that you feel like you're made for, my encouragement, and I think Paul's, would be to turn to the Holy Spirit, to look for empowerment, to look for help, to look for grace from God, a real God, a living God. Welcome his rescue mission to restore the world into your life. The power to stay on track, to get where you want to be in life, comes in the sphere of grace. Because that's where the Holy Spirit is. And one last thing. I think this can be really helpful too. One thing we also need is a part to play. You notice in verse 24 it says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Now, this is actually an odd thing for Paul to say. Paul usually speaks of Jesus doing the crucifying work for us on the cross. But here he speaks of us, of people, crucifying the flesh. What he's talking about is sort of a working faith, a faith that is not what we believe as much it's, as it's what we live out. We have a part to play. And that's good. This isn't just, oh, I want to be in the sphere of grace. Let me wait here and see what happens and let God literally pick me up and move me across the room to do whatever the next thing is. We aren't just waiting for something to happen to us, although sometimes that happens, but we're looking for opportunities to crucify the broken patterns and impulses in our lives, to exercise self-control. Keeping in step with the Holy Spirit is an active process. It's not just waiting for an opportunity or a problem to arise and responding to it, although that happens. But instead, usually, it's actually going after something that you want, that motivates you how you want to be experiencing life, what type of person you want to be, what you want to accomplish. It's praying and asking God his thoughts on those same questions and inviting him into the process. Being in step. And it's not just telling God to get on board with your plan for personal renewal. It's watching for what God is doing, what areas of growth you noticed in your life, where you feel stuck, where you're missing the fruits of the Spirit, where you're overwhelmed by the acts of the flesh. Those are great clues to what the Spirit of God may be up to in your life, where it's not working. And so here's what I would suggest, working faith and active faith. I would suggest deciding on one area. 
and planning some action like a faith experiment. I need to grow in generosity. I feel so insecure about money in my life that I, I, I just can't let go. All right, what's an experiment I can do for the next six months to give away more than I've ever given before and see what happens? That's an experiment. It's a faith experiment. It's active faith. It's not waiting for God to show up one day and touch you and make you a generous person miraculously. Not that that couldn't happen. Generally, God invites us, though, to keep in step with the Spirit. And when the Spirit points out this is an area of your life that's not what it could be, then you jump into that with Him. Because the sphere of grace is moving in that direction. It's not static. Just waiting for the Holy Spirit to show up in one place forever. So try this. Let's just close your eyes. Quick little exercise. Think of an area in your life where you are stuck. Or where you feel like you're often choosing between good and evil. Where are you stuck? Where do you feel like you're often choosing between good and evil? Okay? You got it? Okay. Now, don't think about willpower or how you resist next time or what you feel like you might be missing out on. Instead, I want you to try and picture, using your imagination, what a good life, the best life in that area, in that relationship, in that situation would look like. What would it look like? Just imagine it for a moment. That relationship healthy. That situation worked out. That conflict resolved. That struggle gone. What does it look like? Now just hold that in your imagination for a second. And just go a step further. Ask the Holy Spirit what the best, healthiest, most amazing life would look like in that situation. Let's sit with that for a second. The Holy Spirit is calling. Now, don't be distracted, but let's do one more thing. You've got that picture, what a, a, the good life, what a good life, what a healthy life, what a, a grace-filled life would look like in that area. Now ask God, or look around in your imagination, what's in your way? What's keeping you from that, from that experience? What's in your way? Maybe say, ask God a question. How do I get over or around or through that thing? And then think, what can you try to get over or around or through that thing to see that change? What could you actually do? What would push you out of your comfort zone? What would take some self-control? What experiment could you do? Super practical. Make it really practical. Okay, open your eyes. Here's what I want to say. This week, try that. Try it. Try it. See if it helps. 
What I think we're doing here is inviting the Holy Spirit into our process of thinking of what could be better, getting past just, oh, evil, good, to picturing what could be and asking the Holy Spirit, how can I get there? So we can stay in step with the Spirit. So whatever that thing was, try it. It may not work, but it might. And one last little tip, tell a friend. So that you can have some encouragement and some encouragement to follow through on what it is you think you might want to try. All right, let's pray. God, thank you so much um, that the perspectives we're offered sometimes are different from the options that we think that we have. I pray for each of us, and myself included, that areas where we're stuck, that you would begin to and continue to create vision in our hearts and our minds for what can be that's motivating, no matter how tough things are right now. And then just take us to the next step along the way. And the road might be really long to that vision of what health new life looks like. But give us enough to take the next step and give us grace to follow through. And we pray that this would be our experience of self-control. Amen. All right, if you're uh, on the worship team, please make your way forward.